Welcome to Complementary, a series covering the principles and practices of interface design hosted by Katie Langerman and Anthony Hobday. Today we're discussing a listener-requested topic around paste layering. So our topic today comes from a listener who sent us a very thoughtful note on the concept of paste layering, which was a new term to me. Um, So before we share his note, I think it makes sense to kind of give a brief overview of what paste layering means. So paste layering is a concept developed by Stuart Brand in his book called The Clock of the Long Now. It's a way to analyze and understand different rates of change and stability within systems, which can help us navigate those systems more effectively. The book provides a really nice graphic to help kind of visualize these different layers, which I'll describe. It basically shows a circle with six layers and starting from the top to bottom, we have fashion, commerce, infrastructure, governance, culture, and nature. And the top layer is meant to represent a rapid pace while the bottom represents a slower pace and each layer is connected and dependent on each other. Also the term pace layering draws inspiration from the layers of a building where different components age and change at different rates. So now we'll get into how this relates to design. But first, I want to share the note that we received from Jeremy Elder on Twitter. So I'll just read that out for us. Something I'm actively thinking on is the concept of pace layering, specifically the layers that move out centrally from brand to design system and eventually out to experiments and how to have healthy friction while limiting turbulence. On the recent podcast, I loved your go deep on the boring things quote. Thank you. (laughs) And as it relates to this, I find the boring things are more central and impact the outer layers, but they don't often impact a user until they've been applied to at the other layers. This creates an interesting balance between internal and external value creation, not to mention prioritizing work and advocating for the boring things when they're less visible to users in their raw form. I feel that. (laughs) The boring things are like the tenets of the design language the nouns and verbs, etc. But it's in the outer layers that provide the expression of the language and communicate meaning. The boring things are the ingredients in the recipes, but it's the outer layers that cook the dish. Ooh, nicely said. I've designed at multiple layers throughout my career, and I can say that design systems has been the most challenging. Yep. Anyhow, it's something I've been mulling over and currently experience. Thanks for your time. Uh, so Jeremy also shared a couple of articles that I read a couple of times because they were very interesting that we'll share in the show notes that are really like tie this into design systems. And um, so we'll we'll get more into the concept of pace layering now. Yeah. Thank you to Jeremy as well. It's uh, I think this is our first user suggested user. Yeah. <laughs> Listener. I, I suppose they are a user of the podcast. Yeah. A listener suggested topic, as far as I can remember. Yeah, I really like this topic. I think it's really interesting to think about, especially from the design systems perspective. Mm, It's quite philosophical. Yeah. Um, So I think one thing we could kind of discuss here with pace layering is how we might be able to inform what areas of interface design deserve more time and attention than others can we quantify that somehow? So like one one of the things that the, one of the articles went into detail about is using time as a way to quantify 
this, like things that take longer, mm. um, things that don't need to change as often take longer. So how can we use this concept to help us in, inform uh, interface design decisions? It, it, it's interesting. Do they mean that it takes, uh, it does take longer just by its nature or it should take longer? As in, uh, well, I think the first thing to do for my benefit is that this uh, pace layering diagram you've described and that hopefully people who are listening to this will go and look up while we're talking about it. It feels like design fits into there relatively well as it is and design of software interfaces could be a replacement for the fashion pace layer, for example. Mm -hmm. And then it feels sort of fractal in the sense that you could zoom in and say, okay, for this interface design layer, it's got its own sort of pace layers. Because we do as designers have to think about commerce and infrastructure and those sorts of things when we're designing software. And so most of the uh, the diagram, as it was in the original book, um, sort of works quite well as the sort of real world pace layers that we have to be aware of. But then if you zoom in just the interface design, you get its own pace layers. And so the lowest layer might be how the might be something at the company or it might be the design system for example and so i'm wondering at what level we're zooming in and talking about which pace layers are we looking at exactly <laughs> i think we should zoom into interface design hmm. pace layers i guess just like reflecting on what you just said i see like i don't think i could bucket all of interface design in the fashion layer because there's different parts of interface design that move faster than others like I think one of the examples was marketing and brand. Nothing lasts forever in, in that. So that's very like fashionable, yeah. trendy kind of stuff. But then there are like much lower level parts of interface design that probably rarely change, like the foundations and the mm. patterns and that kind of thing. So it would be interesting to maybe talk about it from that lens. Yeah. So back to your original question, you said... Uh which things deserve more time and attention. And it makes me wonder, because you could spend very little time on a design system, for example, as sort of a foundational layer. And um, design system people would say, oh, that's bad. But you don't necessarily need to. You could then design a successful interface without thinking much about that, especially if your interface is sort of less complicated. Um, and so is it about it, it must take longer or is it about it should take longer? Like, here are the things that we should slot into these slower moving layers, and we shouldn't try to handle them as faster moving things. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so for example, should the design system be a six month long project and we do it all up front and then it's finished and we try not to touch it if we can? Or should the design system be a thing where we're constantly going in and making changes and therefore it is constantly changing and maybe we update all of our? I don't know, let's say spacing values once every two months. I don't know oh, if that boy. creates immediately nightmares <laughs> for you. Yeah, well, one of the arguments that Nathan Curtis made in, in one of the articles that Jeremy shared that we will put in the show notes is that pretty much everything design systems related needs to move much slower because it's at the lower level of mm. the, the pace layering. And so... I think he was talking about how it can be frustrating for product designers not working on design systems to want to contribute back or like build a component um, 
because they are moving at a much faster pace at the top layer where they just have a feature that they need to push. And so they have less to think about in terms of design system stuff. Like they're thinking about other things like data and usability and um, the actual like other aspects of the feature that they're trying to ship. Whereas design systems people are don't care about that at all and they care more about the lower level things that will last like this has to be usable for other features and other teams not dependent on data um it has to be robust so there's like different ways to look at it from that perspective and he's basically arguing Mm. that it might seem more expensive to take that time and move at a slower pace um, but it's necessary for a design system whereas the fashion layer (laughs) is kind of funny calling it that is like doesn't necessarily need that kind of attention and could move a little bit faster. But you're kind of making me think about like for a marketing site, you could technically just build a really uh, kind of low level design system, but it wouldn't really be a design system, more like a pattern library of things you can grab from to build your, I think that's probably very common for like a totally new landing Mm. page design. You you build a bunch of patterns that you're going to reuse and that's you're probably going to throw it away. So it's not doesn't need to be like a long term commitment. It's more of like a transient little design system for your one feature. So I think there's like mm-hmm. different flavors of it. And it, it feels partly like, especially when we have apparently full control over our interfaces, unlike things like nature and culture. You know, we don't have we're not the masters of those domains. Um, it feels like with an interface, when you do have full control over things like the design system, technically, uh, it becomes more about what's more painful to change. If we wanted to change all of the design system stuff, for example, that would ripple through and affect loads of stuff above it that's been built on it. And therefore, it's a very painful change to make. And so, and so it feels like, that. yeah, if, if something would be more painful to change, then we should spend more time on it up front. We should make sure we get it right because it will be harder to change later. And that's why those things move more slowly. We've got to be more careful. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's interesting for me to think about it in terms of not time, but pain. So <laughs> pain layering, maybe, where you're saying like the things at the lower levels are the most painful to change. And so you should make sure to get them right first, because if you want to change them later. And that ties into the whole concept of technical debt and design debt, where those things build up, uh, perhaps because they are annoying to change in the moment. And that's because we didn't spend enough time on them up front to get them right. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of cascades throughout each layer. So they're like moving at different paces, mm-hmm. but everything in the foundational layer that's meant to not change still has an impact on the top layer that's like really fast moving. So it's kind of interesting yeah. to think about it in that way. It does kind of increase the risk of changing those lower levels because um, it will mm, really there's more everything more relying on them yeah but th- at the same time it's very cool because then everything is connected and you can make these really big sweeping changes it's just difficult to do that and so maybe there's something in like thinking about how the different layers are relying on each other there was one note in one of the articles i read talking about tooling as like a trend i think that was i think he put it in the fashion layer um, or maybe this is a Nathan Curtis's article, but talking about tying your tooling to um, like a more foundational layer of your pace layering model. Mm. Uh, 
could be problematic because you've then directly tied something very fast moving and like changing very frequently to something that's meant to be stable and not ever change. And that felt really relevant to me in more like an engineering sense, or I guess it could be a design sense too, but um, with frameworks and like everybody's really interested in kind of locking in with like something like React or whatever. Um, And then you're tying it to like your lowest level stuff that's never meant to change. But then in a couple of years, you're going to have to (laughs) rewrite everything in the next big trending tool. And I think the same is probably true for Figma and the next design tool that comes around. Like we're going to have to uproot all of these foundational things that we've built in the tool just to change something in the fashion layer. So Mm. there's a a weird example in my head of uh, if you take a, an illustration, let's say in your interface or your website, the illustration on the face of it looks more complicated or is more complicated than the size of your body text, uh, for example. But generally, design systems take the size of the body text and have all sorts of wide-ranging, uh, far-reaching implications based on them. And so they'll use the body text size as like the base size for everything. Everything's mathematically based on that one number. And so even though body text size feels much simpler technically, than the effort that went into producing an illustration, maybe of a person using a laptop or something. Uh, if you wanted to change the illustration, it would be probably a five-minute job to swap it out, uh, minus the time it takes to uh, actually draw the new illustration. But if you wanted to change the body text size, I think someone would come running and they'd basically throw you out because it's probably going to affect almost everything in the app. It'll make it all feel completely different, different densities and everything and uh, maybe some stuff would break. And so I find it interesting that there are some apparently simple things that sit at a much lower pace layer or a much higher pain layer, let's say, <laughs> uh, where if you wanted to change it, even though it seems simple to do that, it would uh, be awful. Mm-hmm. But then again, I think sort of a, a dream state of a design system is that you could go in and change that one number and hopefully everything would automatically update and still work. Yeah. So it's interesting to think about how some of the purposes of design systems is to avoid some of this pain of changing fundamental things. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. I do think that is the dream scenario, and it's hard to get there because, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like with everything, your your design system d- didn't start like in a perfect state. So you probably had you're responding to something that needed a design system that might be kind of legacy at this point, and you're like a couple of years in. And you're having to go back and relay the foundations of your slowest moving pace layer (laughs) that should never change. Mm. Um, So I think we're all, I think something that's happening probably now is that a lot of design systems teams are going back to the foundation layer and trying to relay the bricks. Like how, how, how long can I, how far can I take this (laughs) analogy? Um, We're all trying to create new foundations to be able to support more creativity and the to be able to better support the top layer, the fashion layer and the trends and not mm. be so vendor locked in. But it's so hard to get there. Yeah, it feels like this is uh, sort of a meta pace layering in the sense that you can have opinions about how much, say, a design system should change, but then the opinions about that are changing as, as well in the market, you know, the role that design systems have is going to shift as because it's a relatively mm-hmm. new 
new approach to work, you know, design systems weren't a thing before. Yeah. Uh, X number of decades ago. I don't want to make a guess because someone will come <laughs> along and be like, actually, this design system came out before then. <laughs> but yeah. I, I also think about how this is related to, there's that saying about it's easier to change uh, a building on the drafting table than it is on the building site or something. Hmm. Uh, it's like an architectural saying, but it's basically, you know, if you want to change it in the blueprint, that's much easier than changing it once you've built the thing. Um, I'm wondering how it connects there because it sort of feels like the the blueprint is at a lower level in that sense. Yep. In the pace layering, like you have to get this thing right before you can... But then the building is the thing that lasts forever. So I don't know if those are sort of um, concepts that don't work together that concept and pace layers but um yeah there's definitely a sense of where it where is it more painful to change things yeah well that makes me think like i think we can we don't have to talk about design systems the whole time for this topic because that makes me think about just basic interface design and prototyping and user testing because that's your blueprint right you're like creating you're not actually shipping in the thing you're creating some kind of prototype to validate mm. your ideas or your future ideas, getting feedback on your blueprint before you actually ship it and do structural damage to the product <laughs> or not, and then making the change during that phase. So that's like rapid iteration. So that feels like top layer, very fast and not painful, I don't think, because you haven't shipped anything yet. You're mm. just doing research. Um, I, the more painful part would be like shipping it and then having really negative feedback or breaking something in production without that. Because mm. uh, Jeremy mentions experiments in his original message to us. And I, I guess it's uh, it's an interesting case where those experiments aren't necessarily part of this sort of pace layering concept. They're the things you do outside of the, the diagram, as it were, so that you can commit to changes you want to make inside the pace layers. And so... If if it's hard to change your interface once it's been shipped or the building once it's been built, then you're doing these experiments on the blueprint, you know, or uh, in your prototypes for your interface. You're doing those experiments so that you can feel more confident about the change you eventually want to make or commit to your uh, to your interface. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's just like a separate play area, and that doesn't really come into pace layering. Um, mm -hmm. The experiments are there because of this problem with oh this this, this layer is more painful to change. We should avoid that. Whereas you wouldn't. To use the example of an illustration again, you wouldn't really do an experiment with an illustration. You might pull it in in Figma or something and see if it fits in the space. But you're not putting the new illustration in and necessarily checking with your colleagues whether they think it works. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, there's um, there's an area where more experiments are necessary, maybe because changes are harder. So maybe that's how it fits in. Ooh, I really like that idea. So it's sort of it's weird. Yeah, it's outside of it. It's outside of the pace layering model. Um, but mm. it kind of feeds into it and become, it, it's it kind of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It limits risk. Yes. Yeah. So understanding which parts of your product are at the bottom of your pace layering model would be a good place to think about what you might experiment on in your little play area blueprint yeah, I, this is a hard thing to think about because I think a lot of what we consider interface design, considered to be our jobs, is actually experimentation, and we don't really think of it that way. 
just like an architect's drawing a blueprint, I think they're basically experimenting with the idea of the building. Because they could, the architect could just go down to the building site and start asking builders to like lay, lay bricks, you know, put one there, put another one here. But um, drawing it all on a piece of paper first, or, you know, drawing it all in Figma first for an interface, is, is really doing a lot of trial and error to figure out, okay, this is what we want to commit to. Uh, and so it's, we, we generally think of experiments as things like user tests, usability tests. But actually drawing a mock-up in the first place, I think, is an experiment of a kind because otherwise you'd be going straight to the developers and saying, you know, put a box here, put some text in here. Mm -hmm. uh, but that would be absolute madness because, you know, you get a lot of things wrong. Well, <laughs> I ha hate to say it, but I think that's very common. <laughs> I think a lot of user testing is done without designers and just kind of in production behind a feature flag. Um, mm. So that's like a whole well, other, mm. like how do you come up with the features that you want to test, I think? is it doesn't have to necessarily be um like designing mock-ups and prototypes in figma where do those even where does the feature idea even come from i think a lot of times they sit in the top trend layer so we see some kind of trend happening ai is a good one i think to talk about right now it's like very trendy so lots of products get the idea that we need to integrate it somehow but where does that fit in the <laughs> pace layering model? Like, yeah, I've I've actually run into this. We are looking at ways we can use AI in the product I work on day to day. Part of the issue, from my perspective, is that I know that things like the sparkle icon that everyone seems to have <laughs> adopted for AI as a concept doesn't actually represent anything except this is new, hmm. and that that bothers me because that's based on fashion. And I don't think we should commit things to our interfaces that are fashionable in that sense, because then the fashion will change and we'll still be using the AI, I assume. It's quite a powerful technology, but the icons will stop being relevant because it's not so new anymore. And so we're actually looking at ways we can use icons and terms that don't talk about AI, don't use sparkles, that basically refer to what the AI is helping us to do. And, um, and so in that sense, we're sort of avoiding the fashion layer and uh, trying to commit to it, the fashionable technology at a sort of deeper layer and say, how do we actually want to sort of display this going forward in five or 10 years time? Because I suspect a lot of these products that are putting AI driven features in now, we'll have to relabel them, rebrand them later on when AI stops being a buzzword and it is underpinning a lot of features. Because you can't just add 10 features and call them all AI. That doesn't make any sense. That's really interesting. I think we should have a conversation about that in the future once you've sort of realized those changes in the product that you're working on, because that's a perspective I hadn't really thought about or heard yet, kind of like coming at it from not just like this is the this is the fashion trend, like, like calling it what it is. This is the AI thing. Here's your new feature, but more talking about what it's actually doing and just presenting the benefits of how you would use it to the user. And it's like mm. not disguising it or being sneaky about what it is, but just being more upfront, I guess, about why you would use it. So that's cool. Yeah, because I think I can't look at it. Well, I haven't looked at it recently, but I think some companies like Notion basically released a feature called Notion AI. And then I guess you have to just talk about what it does in yeah. the product or give helper text or something. I know that uh, Photoshop, this is dating the episode a bit, but Photoshop relatively recently uh, 
released or announced a generative fill, which I, I think is a pretty good attempt at explaining what the thing does. Yeah. But fill is such a sort of a vague concept and generative, I think, is almost a technical term at this point because they talk about generative AI for text as well. Like it's basically generating text for you. And so you need those sorts of attempts. I think those will last uh, in terms of explaining what the feature is doing, whereas just saying Notion AI, for example, does not explain what they're using AI to do at all. Right. And it just happens to be that the only real valuable use case of AI at the moment is generating text for people mm -hmm. or in uh, Photoshop's case, generating imagery. Um, but as AI helps you to categorize, let's say, a load of issues in your issue tracker, uh, it's not generative fill, it's not generative text, it's AI-driven categorization. <laughs> and so you need a different term for it if you want to keep up that sort of fashionable, oh, look, we're using AI, please invest in us right. approach. To building features and so i think it's dangerous for people uh sort of coming back to jeremy's point is it's dangerous for people to sort of put a put something in the fashion layer when actually it should be a lower layer for for the long-term benefits Ooh, well i was going to say maybe ai is an example of uh something that will move through the pace layer model like it starts in the fashion layer and then as it matures mm. it becomes part of the foundational but i think that was kind of one of the arguments is that um, the quote move fast and break things was brought up in one of the articles that Jeremy shared. So we're in the move fast and break things fashion layer with AI right now, I think, with just kind of throwing it in and seeing what happens. But you're kind of mm. describing like, what if we actually start with it in the lower level long-term bet? Because you think in five to 10 years, it's really still going to be here and be even more prominent. And so what does that look like? Like, how is that going to set you up for success better than the fashion layer? Yeah, I think I'm relying on my memory here, which is famously unreliable. But I think it was uh, Raycast, the sort of search your computer tool or like uh, command palette from your computer. I think they put an AI action basically in the far right of their command palette in sort of the default view of Raycast. I think they gave extremely valuable real estate to this AI Sparkle icon. Auto-generating, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if I'm wrong, then uh, I'm thinking of something else. But um, I think the point remains that some of these apps are giving really valuable interface real estate to AI because it's the hot new thing. And that feels absolutely mad to me because if, if it wasn't driven by AI, I don't think they'd ever give such a prominent location to that thing. And in, let's say, even six months, maybe, they're going to have to find a way to shift that out of the prominent places in right now because that's extremely valuable like i say and put it somewhere else and uh I, I guess the point i'm making is why don't they put it somewhere else to start with yeah you know if, if they if they think that ai is really powerful technology and they're going to commit to it then surely it shouldn't be in this location of prominence surely it should be wherever else you put things that help you to you know submit a request or answer questions or whatever right so that, that's that's the thing that feels a bit strange to me is that people are I'm happy that people are committing to it and seeing how it can be useful. I'm, I'm not so happy that they're treating it like it's temporary. Yeah, because you can only have so many things prominently displayed. Mm. And I think what tends to happen is um, each team that has the new feature that they want prominently displayed will fight for it to be there. And then you suddenly have an interface that's full of these disconnected features that 
I think this is what they call like you can see the org chart in the product. <laughs> like you can see oh, yeah. all the different teams and what they're working on and they're not connected and they aren't better for the user. It's just clutter because once it's there, it's hard to move it somewhere else. Um, so this kind of ties into like the last topic I guess I wanted to talk about is like how understanding these different layers can help you determine that process for, I guess in this case, working on new features. Um, if you're able to make a case like a, for what you're saying is, I think we should take a long-term bet on this new functionality of AI and it should be more integrated into our product like at a lower level foundational layer versus let's just stick it in this highly prominent place to quickly test. I think that's a hard sell depending on where you work and like the structure, but this goes back to move fast and break things because I think the typical mm. process you would hear from a product owner is, well, we don't like, we can't take a bet on this yet because we don't know how it's going to perform. So we need to put it somewhere really prominent and just get some quick results and, and then we'll, and then later, you know, we'll make it better, which is then becomes tech debt and it rarely ever does get better. So maybe understanding and yeah. being able to speak to this for your product would give you a deeper understanding of the product you're working on and also make you sound <laughs> like you know what you're talking about when you're trying to make a case for like, let's actually slow down and see how we can get this into a more foundational layer. I find it as... A brief uh, aside, I find it quite strange that if something is potentially less important, you make it more prominent uh, in your interface. I think it's because interfaces are driven so much by attention, especially for new features. Uh, but yeah, if something's really important and foundational to your application, to your interface, you actually sort of hide it away somewhere and you maybe help people discover it other ways. But if something's potentially less important or you're not so sure about it, suddenly you put it in the most visible place you can. And that feels completely backwards, but I think it is driven by the fact that we need people to use things in our interfaces, often for commercial reasons, and we're worried that they won't go and find it on their own. Um, and so we put things that we're less sure about in much more important places. Uh, that seems backwards to me. I understand exactly why it happens, but um, I think you're right. You can use this sort of concept uh, when you're discussing things at work and you could say, okay, I know AI is the hot thing right now, and we all want to put it on the homepage or the equivalent of, but yeah, maybe let's assume that it's going to do really well and um, weave it throughout the application and maybe not even mention AI and we can talk about it in marketing materials, or whatever, but how can we make it so that people benefit from it in the application without really changing much? Because it's the changing much that often bothers people. Mm -hmm. You know, if suddenly everything's labeled with AI and there's eight, eight new buttons that say, oh, you can generate this with AI, or you can generate this. That's um, a bit of a annoying change to some people. So, yeah. Um, but I, I can see why your bosses might turn around and be like, no, it's, it's going to help us commercially. We should really push it in the most prominent place we can, which yeah. is often not good for design. Right. Well, it's the job of the designer to advocate for those longer term bets, I think. And we talked about like the pain scale earlier. I don't necessarily mm. think it's more painful to think about the the long-term foundational value of this new feature versus retrofitting it into the most prominent part of your product. I think they're equally painful in different ways. <laughs> like mm. the longer term one forces you to actually think deeply about how this new feature interacts with the rest of your product, which I think is 
the job of a designer. And that's what I'm seeing a lot at, at GitHub, which is really cool to see um, product designers thinking about AI throughout everything and, and how what, what it really means for the entire product. Um, also to your point about just like your aside, I think the most common thing that I see people do is throw things in a dialogue or like a, a modal overlay, mm. which doesn't have a URL. And so you, there is like no foundational way to get back to that new feature that you're trying so hard to get people to use. And so when you're forced to think about like, maybe this should be in a settings page somewhere or like as part of has an actual URL to it somewhere else that people can go back to and discover that again forces you to think about the entire architecture of your product and like where it sits and just even thinking about URL structure like where what part of the product does this new feature relate to and sit under and how does it impact everything else versus throwing in a dialogue that is very transient and you can never get back to yeah there's something weird happening in my head where I'm thinking about the equivalent of pace layers but for sort of human behavior and actually people's people's behavior with your interface change relatively slowly and so you have to be sort of cautious around that and so maybe you need to show them the really fashionable side of your interface like the really bright and vibrant and it changes often and please notice me side to get them to try to change their behavior because actually if you put it at those lower levels and say okay it will be it'll be visible but not really call attention to itself on every page where this feature is relevant. Everywhere they could generate text, we're going to put a little icon that means generate. Um, we'll never find one that's suitable, but you know, we'll put an icon <laughs> that means generate every place where there's a text field. And, uh, and then basically no one will notice it and no one will click it because they're used to just typing in that text field and hitting confirm or submit. And so what we're trying to change there is almost like a lower pace layer in the person themselves where you're saying we want you to change your behavior and that changes slowly it changes uh, not often mm -hmm. and so we need to use something that's more noticeable in our interface to make you change something that's less noticeable in yourself and so i don't know how much i'm stretching the concept of pace layers <laughs> there but it definitely like i guess fashion relates to the highest pace layer it relates to people as well right the things they change about themselves often Maybe those are easier to affect with our interfaces, but maybe the things they don't change about themselves often are much harder for us. And so mm. we have to get their attention. And so it feels like there's something there about sort of competing pace layers in people yeah. and in interfaces. Yes, it definitely will depend on the kind of feature that you're talking about, because if it's something that is dis, I don't want to say disrupting, it's like changing something about a process that a person is so accustomed to doing a certain way and i think that's what ai is mm. trying to do how do you get their attention in the middle of their process that they're very used to doing a certain way without ruining the experience maybe it's an opt-in yeah. type of feature <laughs> maybe you don't need to um force people to use it and just make it available for people who do want to change their process in some way there was one thing that I was looking at with uh, an AI feature that I'm working on, which is that basically we're suggesting values to you for the thing you're working on. So we're saying we can help you categorize this or whatever it is. And here are some suggestions. And I was going back and forth between the idea of making it less noticeable so that our suggestions, because they're not called upon by the person, they're automatic. And so that's one way we're tackling it is basically we're saying we're making it automatic so that you don't have to necessarily engage with the feature. 
But then these automatic suggestions, do we make them less noticeable? Do we de-emphasize them because it's automatic and people haven't asked for them? We don't want to annoy them, get in their way, take up more space. Or do we make it more emphasized, more noticeable because we want people to see them and then hopefully save themselves some time? You know, in the end, we're doing it to help people save time so they don't have to do it manually. But we're potentially annoying them in the meantime because we're suggesting these things and getting them to notice and get used to it and potentially trust this feature uh, so that they will engage with it and will accept these suggestions and it will save them time in the long run. But in the short run, they're sort of, we're getting in their way. Mm-hmm. That's a really hard balance to strike. And um, I think it's because we're, yeah, we're clashing with things on the human side that are um, hard to change and that people don't necessarily want to change. Yeah. And there's different, there's a different time and place, I guess, for what the user might want or might expect like an autocomplete type AI situation where it's finishing your sentence or like giving you a line of code sometimes feel really good and like very helpful, but other times they get in the way, but it's the same feature. It's just dependent on like what you're writing, where you're writing. It's very detailed. Like, I don't know how it would, how you could perfect it really. So I think all of these things are always going to be annoying. Like at some at some point. So I guess the key is to just try to be as <laughs> least disruptive as possible. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder what's better in the long run, right? Maybe more disruptive is better in the long run if you if you really believe in the feature and believe it will help. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining you're in a code editor and you type in the letter A and it gives you like eight paragraphs of code because it's guessing what you want to write. If that is what you want to write, fantastic. If it's not what you want to write, that must be extremely distracting. And it's like, that's that's stopping me from remembering what I wanted to write before because now I'm seeing all this like, and maybe it's like grayed out, you know, it's de-emphasized text, but it still grabs your attention. Yeah. And probably in the worst possible moment because you need to be paying attention to what you're writing. And I wonder how much of this, like these models, I don't really know a whole lot about how this kind of stuff works, but something came up with Tesla recently that just made me think about this. But for Tesla, for um, like fully... Automate, automated, automated, for fully automated driving, the car really wants you to let Tesla do it for you because they need to learn, they need the model to learn what they're doing right mm. or wrong. And so there are like certain overrides that you can do. Like you can, there's a setting that will let you do autopilot, I think is what it's called. And then you can cancel it changing lanes. Like that's a, that was a feature built in. So it's basically saying, let us do most of the driving, but like if you want to override it at any time, you can by disabling the lane change feature. And they just got rid of that recently. So they're, well, they didn't get rid of it. They hid it away. <laughs> so you would have to like go through a lot of work to turn it on for your drive. And they do that because you're part of a beta and they need that data from you and they want the model to improve. I wonder if the same is with AI. Like, it might actually get more annoying in the short term so that it can keep learning as much as possible. And then it will get to a point where it's so good that it's not annoying and it is very helpful. So you're never annoyed by the autocomplete, but I don't know. Mm. Yeah. It's a, uh, I guess it's a big risk if, if these things don't improve as much as we want them to mm-hmm. We've included <laughs> in, all, in all our interfaces and um, we have to slowly take them out. You know, yeah. I guess it's like any feature you add to an interface, like uh, spaces on Twitter, no, not spaces. Uh, there was a feature they added and then took out again. 
the hud like the because like huddle type things with the calls. Yeah, but they still have those. So it's something else. Or maybe they brought them back. But there was something they added, realized it wasn't a good feature, and so they took it away again. But they gave it quite good like prominence in the interface up to that point. And it almost seems hypocritical when you see that happen, where you see a big feature is added and promoted. And then basically they say, it turns out it's not very good, so we're taking it away again. Yeah. Um, and you have to undo the changes, which is... You know, I suspect that with the amount of hype around AI, it's hard to know whether that will happen or not. It looks like it would never happen just because it seems so transformative. Mm -hmm. But uh, this is definitely becoming an episode about AI, it turns out. I just realized that. <laughs> well, we talked a lot about design yeah. systems in the beginning, too. So, Yeah, I suppose uh, given the time we're recording this, it's hard to avoid the topic of AI. Because it is. Pr pretty much every designer is being asked to think about how they can include it in their interfaces. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to see what kind of icons people come up with long term. We need some of the best icon people just like deeply thinking about how to represent these things. Yeah, I, I've, I've had to avoid sparkles uh, because that's what everyone else is using and it feels too fashionable. And so I came up with, um, well, I didn't come up with, I chose from the icon set we use, uh, a CPU icon Ooh. because I was basically representing the computer is suggesting things to you. And the CPU felt like it's, it's a brain, but it's not your brain. Yeah. It's a mechanical brain, right? And so it's uh, electrical brain. And so how do you represent the computers making stuff up in the way that you would? And it could be that someone combines like a, a human brain and some mechanical sense, like a brain with um, sort of uh, circuitry. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if that's, that's probably quite hard to represent in 16 pixels, but um, <laughs> maybe that sort of thing is the direction it'll go in. Yeah. But that uh, reference is like a video you know, game it, reference, kind of. Like if you, if you're playing mm -hmm. against the computer, you usually call it a CPU. Yeah, so um, maybe this will be the start of the new, you know, icon paradigm yeah. that people choose for AI stuff. Maybe this is people. Someone will hear it here. Yep. And then they'll use it for the first time in their software interface. You've done it. And we won't be credited. <laughs> well, you can celebrate silently when you see it, and I'm sure you will see it in your. You do a lot of extensive design research, so it'll pop up in your feed. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Anything else on pace layering? Well, I only hope that we've uh, done it justice yeah. since this is our first listener suggested topic. But it's it's definitely it's big and it's it gives you a lot to think about in terms of which things should change more, which things should change less. Yeah. I, I do think that designers just through working their day to day job end up with a pretty good sense of which things should change more and which things less. Mm -hmm. because they start to see how painful it is. Or the developers come along and say, no, we can't change that. And suddenly they realize, oh, wait, we should have thought about that beforehand. So um, I think you get a natural sense for it. And that's you know, potentially why design systems has become as, as big as it is, because people are realizing, oh, this thing is really hard to change later on. We need a good foundation. So yeah. let's put a lot of time and money into it that we weren't putting in before. Yeah, I think you're right. I think with like anything design-wise, it helps to try to quantify and understand these concepts just for your own sake, and it helps you better communicate in your role. So I highly recommend people check out the articles in the show notes because they thought they were really insightful and got me thinking mm. a lot about this topic. Uh, it, it makes me wonder, actually, on that point, whether there's a correlation between the things that change should change less or are more important 
and how much money is put into them in any given company. And so Ooh. if things like the illustrations you use in your application or in your website, uh, if they change quite often, maybe companies actually put less time into it. And um, you might have a design system team of 20, but an illustrator team of one. Or you outsource. It's a very big company. Or you outsource, yeah. So maybe the things that are higher up that pace layer diagram actually get less investment because they're less foundational. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes me wonder if there's a correlation there. I assume there is. I think so. So many, Such an interesting topic. Thanks, Jeremy, for mm. sharing this question mm. with us. We need to find a way to get more questions like that because I think it's really interesting. I suppose for now, feel free to send us DMs on Twitter with any topic you want us to discuss. Yeah. Maybe we'll find a more official way. Please do. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this week's episode and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.